Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Rishi, welcome to Building Blocks. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here. It's so cool to have you back on Real Vision. In fact, just before we got started, I was talking to our producer, Frank, about what an interesting life you've led. You are a perfect guest for this show. I'd like to talk a little bit about your life before you got into crypto, because you've done some really interesting stuff over the last decades. Tell us a little bit about your background. Decades. Well, it's true, but I'm old. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, I got into the hedge fund business right out of college, and that was a total accident. Um, I, I can tell you that story if you want. It's a, it's a little silly. Yeah, please. So I, um, my brother worked. He graduated MIT five years. You know, he's five years ahead of me, and so he graduated MIT math and CS, and went to take jobs on Wall Street like right away. And uh, after my junior year of college, he got me an internship that I didn't ask for and didn't want in New York working for Citibank's fixed income architecture group, which was like building the desktop technologies for their fixed income traders. And, you know, recognize I don't, I didn't know how to code. I still don't. Um, and, you know, didn't know anything about trading. I basically had no reason to be there, but it was a summer college internship. So whatever, <laughs> I guess I had pretty low expectations. And, uh, it turned out that my job really was to listen to the story to the guy who ran the group who will remain nameless. Um, uh, you know, cocaine and hookers and Polaroids and things like that. And, um, and not judge him. And you know, I was pretty good at that. I was going to school at Berkeley. So whatever, man, you know, and, uh, uh, so he really liked me and he gave me, uh, a paid internship to not do any work during the school year. Then he flew me back to New York for the winter and then paid another you know, internship for the spring semester. And all of this was to try to get me to come back and work full time. But I really did not want to move to New York. And, uh, you know, I figured being like his therapist wasn't going to like last forever. And so uh, I started looking for jobs at Citibank using their like little company directory. And I just applied randomly to like all of them, more or less. Like, I was applying to be a bank teller. It did not fucking matter, you know. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, I, I called this one group, uh, just like I called all the other ones and its name was Citibank global asset management, alternative investment strategies. And lo and behold, the MD in charge of the group answered his own phone, which uh, having worked there, I never saw that happen again. Maybe that's why maybe he learned his lesson with me. Uh, they were hiring the guy loved Berkeley grads, loved econ grads, and absolutely loved that. I was already a Citibank employee because, he sort of felt like that was just going to make his life easier. Uh, so, uh, you know, I got the job and that's how I ended up in hedge funds. And you fast forward. So I worked there three years. Then my brother made me quit and uh, start a company with him. So that was Tradeworks back in 1999. 
and then uh, in 2002, I went to work for their biggest investor. We had a StatArb fund, you know, equity market neutral quant fund. And uh, I went to work for their biggest investor. It was a fund of funds in Santa Barbara. And then in 05, uh, a guy who was looking at potentially investing in the Santa Barbara fund asked if I would be open to starting my own business. And so I said, sure, reluctantly, but I did. And so I started my company, uh, which is called T2AM, uh, back in the beginning of 2005. So you fast forward from there, and I wrote a book. It came out in 2009, second edition in 2013, called Inside the Black Box. Um, it's really attempt to explicate what quant investing is without any formulas or technical mumbo jumbo. And on the back of that, I started to become a little bit better known. Uh, and so I started to get asked to become an advisor to different groups. And so that's, I think, probably where more of the fun stuff is, is in my advisory work. So the first advisory gig I took on was with a company that recently gone public called Planet Labs, which does uh, satellite imagery of the entire landmass of the Earth every day. And they wanted my help thinking about how to monetize their data in the hedge fund space because hedge funds are known for consuming interesting and expensive data sets. So I've helped them out with some of that. Uh, and fast forwarding like DARPA retain me. I don't get paid to work with DARPA, but it's just pretty cool to have on the old LinkedIn, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, working with DARPA on some like financial warfare things, uh, working with and no NDA, which is cool. No security clearance. Um, uh I was going to make a joke about mail servers, but I decided not to. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and Hyperion Decimus is a crypto fund um, that we both know well, uh, that I became an advisor to a little over a year ago. Uh, and then just I'll name a couple others quick. Um, AngelList, the big BC platform. I've been an advisor to them for about a year and a half. And... Uh, Lastly, there's a group called Mission Road Sound that is doing a really interesting approach to investing in music royalties, systematically investing in music royalties. So that's pretty fun. So yeah, that's a little picture of what I've been up to. So for people who I said you had an interesting background to, you were not disappointed, I'm sure, by hearing that biography. It's really a fascinating story, all of the things that you've done uh, in your years in finance. You know, you and I are about the same age, and I was kind of able to sneak in the back door an investment bank credit suisse uh, myself. And it's funny because I think people have this expectation that the way that you get into finances, you you lead this sort of really regimented, boring, button-down life, and you you go to the right school and you major in the right thing, and then you go to the right MBA program. And then, you know, maybe if you're lucky, the you know, the 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 gods of uh, keyword search pull you into the right bank. But the reality is there's always been this weird way. I mean, I don't know if it's still the case. I hope it is, but it certainly was true when you and I were coming up for smart, eccentric people who had unique ways of seeing the world to come into the space. And again, to your point, so relationship-driven, right? Getting to know the right people, yeah. the right time. It's so critical. I mean, I was going to point out two words, luck and nepotism, right? Like, <laughs> I would not have gotten that internship if it was not for nepotism. And I would not have gotten the job if it wasn't for having had the internship. Uh, and then the luck part was like literally just sticking my nose out there and going, Hey, anyone hiring? And it happened that this one guy was, you know, so, uh, that, that serendipity was pretty, pretty ridiculous. You know, I'm not a believer yeah. in like things happen for a reason or all that bullshit, but like that was, that was pretty far out. And it turned out like, I love that work, you know, <laughs> like I, I went from being a very lazy, shitty student to being like pretty good at my job. 
Yeah. Me too. Um, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. I actually worked at Credit Suisse twice and um, I got the second job at Credit Suisse, which is a, a vice presidency when I was I don't know, 26 or so, uh, assistant vice president, technical expert out of uh, the Credit Suisse offices in Princeton, New Jersey. And I figured out when I went into the interview that I was going to be meeting with 20 different people. And I realized even at sort of that young age, I got the way this process works, which was as long as nobody hates you, you probably get the job, right? It's like, it was like, eh, do we like this guy? Do we think he's a complete idiot? Uh, no hands go up. You probably get the job. So what I did was whatever question they asked me, and it literally could have been like, what do you like to do on the weekends? I always started every answer the same way. You know, Bob, that's an interesting question. The last time I was at Credit Suisse, it was like this Jedi mind trick. I felt exactly the same way you did. I got in the door. There were all these brilliant people who had decades of financial services experience, who had, you know, MBAs in finance and and masters in quantitative uh, finance. And I was like, I don't, I don't belong here. I don't belong in this room. What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I love that's a great question. That's my favorite. That's my fucking favorite. <laughs> we have to make sure we drop one of those like surreptitiously later. See if people catch it. Yeah, we should write a book. We can. I've sneaking, done that before. Sneaking into finance. I know. So have <laughs> I. I. In fact, you're uh, your publisher. You're at Wiley. Uh, my co-author published his first book at Wiley. Oh, a cool. great sort of quantitative financial uh, division over at, at Wiley. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk a little bit about the book, because in many circles, it's the thing that you're best known for. What was your decision-making process to go inside the black box and to bring people into that world? Many people in quantitative finance are incredibly proprietary uh, about their formulas, about their methods. Why did you want to open up the kimono, so to speak, and show the world what you were doing? All right. Well, I, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but so in August of 2007, there was a big kind of um, blow up of many quant funds. They, a lot of guys lost a lot of money really fast in ways that they never realized they could lose before. So you're talking about things that, you know, on a really huge day, maybe moved 1% up or down. And in those days, we're moving like 15 percentage points up or down. It was absolutely nuts. And while it was happening, actually, before it happened, we kind of knew it was coming. Then while it was happening, we kind of understood what was happening. And then in the aftermath, the press went to town and investors went to town, you know, saying a oh, quant is dead and it's all garbage. And the favorite lines in, uh, in the press were around, you know, whiz bang mathematicians with their complex formulas and whatever. Yep. You know, having been in that space for a while now, uh, even then for a while, I was like, Oh, that's sort of bullshit. And it's annoying because now I'm getting lots of phone calls from investors and from the press asking me about these complex formulas and whiz-bang mathematicians. And I'm like, you know, it's really not that complicated. Like, I was an idiot, and I figured all this shit out. It's, like, really not hard at all. Um, and I, like, you don't know me. I'm a very impatient person. Like, having to say the same thing twice sucks. And, uh, like, I was then having to say the same thing, like, a whole bunch of times. And it was all premised on people just being lazy in their brains. 
And uh, so I got really irritated and I was bitching about it to my friend, Steve Drobny, who's an awesome guy. You should have him on. Steve wrote a really great book where he interviewed a bunch of global macro traders kind of anonymously. So he didn't name them, but that freed them up to speak their minds in a different way than they would ordinarily. <clears throat> and uh, that book is called Inside the House of Money. So I was at his place in Manhattan Beach complaining about this. And he goes, well, if it's so simple, if you can explain it so well, you know, you should explain it to everyone in a book. And I'm like, I mean, I like to write. I could do that. And before, like literally before I could take another breath, he was on his BlackBerry because that's what he had and sending a, uh, uh, an email to Wiley saying, hey, my friend Rishi's going to write a book about quant and you're going to publish it. And literally their response was, okay. So a week later, I had a fucking contract. And, uh, you know, is this not the same story, right, as, <laughs> as the job story, as like the same punchline? It's, it's like luck and, and connection, right? And that's it. Like if I had gone to Wiley as a nobody and said, hey, I have a great idea. I'm going to explain quanta idiots. They wouldn't have said, cool, do that. They would have said, yeah, we're going to ignore you, right? <laughs> But since Steve was like a, an author who had done really well for them, and by, I've paid this forward. I've absolutely gotten two or three people book deals by just sending that same fucking email that Steve sent. <laughs> yeah, that was the impetus. And like after the first edition of it, um, when, I, when I sent my editor the first draft of the first, you know, first full edition, he goes, all right, so the content's really good, but I feel like I got yelled at for 200 pages. Also, there were no examples. And I was like, well, examples are for stupid people because I told you the fucking concept and the example is just a repeat. And I'm already angry having to say this thing. And so, so I made him put like a string of characters. Did he say examples are for stupid people? Exactly. Can we add some? Please? <laughs> he more or less did. And yeah. so he's like, so I go, well, I don't know where, where a stupid person needs an example. Like, so you're going to go through the text. And your job is to put a string of text in everywhere that you think an example is needed <laughs> that I'm going to fucking search for and then replace that string of text with an example, like a robot. And ditto, every time I seem too pissed off, you're going to put a little different <laughs> character string. And I'm going to figure out how to say it less angrily. And that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I'm laughing is because I'm, I'm generally the stupid person on the last uh, book that I co-wrote. With Harry Krishnan, who's a you know PhD and uh, in has a PhD in, in chaos theory and qu applied mathematics with a specialization in chaos theory from from Brown and I went through the you know first draft of the book and said the same thing that your editor did. Yeah, okay, dude, but I need an example. I have no idea what this means, right? And so we went through and we added all of these examples. And it's it's funny that like very often people who see the world in very abstract ways have a hard time like understanding why people who don't need an example. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, you know, you nailed me for sure, because I'm a very abstract thinker. You know, I can put things in categories just sort of intuitively. Um, yeah. And then I stopped, I stopped worrying about the things anymore. And I just have the categories and I'm cool. Yeah, it's the parsimonious way to proceed. Why deal with entities when you can deal with categories? That's right. And, you know, there's enough jumble up here that uh, the, the more parsimony, the better, let's just say. <laughs> Indeed. So tell us a little bit about uh, about what you put forth in that book. Tell us a little bit about quant trading for people who 
have probably heard of the term but may not be familiar with what exactly it means. I think you're exactly right. It does get framed up as, you know, these whiz-bang mathematicians with their string theory and their quantitative particle physics. What does it actually mean? Yeah. In, in reality, in many cases, it's much simpler, exactly as you suggest. Yeah, so uh, quant investing is really automated investing in the same way that, like, quant flying is what we do every single time we hop on an airplane. There's a machine that is controlling almost every single aspect of that takeoff, flight, and landing. And it has an objective function that includes, but is probably not limited to, get there without, get there, don't hit anything, like, you know, be fuel efficient, try to be on time. So those are the objectives of the algorithm that runs the plane. Right. You know, try to minimize bumpiness and blah, blah, blah. It has a whole bunch of objectives. And there's code that takes in inputs in real time from the environment, turbulence and wind speed and blah, 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 and computes uh, an action as a result. Change altitude, don't change it, whatever, whatever, right? Go faster, go slower. Um, <clears throat> go around the mountain, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, that is a, like a pretty great analog for what quant investing is. So investing is just investing, right? And the ideas are basically the same, whether you're a discretionary investor or a quant investor. Perfect example is uh, value. Right. So there are value investors. Well, if you look at like probably the most well-known quant fund out there is AQR because they have, you know, retail funds and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, this is Cliff Asnes's shop. Exactly. Their two headed mantra is value and momentum. Right. So they're implementing the same things that Graham and Dodd were talking about in security analysis but they're trying to systematize as much of it as possible, automate as much as possible, right? So the math of that formula is literally earnings over price. Super not string theory, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, yeah, it's more about automation. And the purpose of, like the reasons, okay, so like why, why do we even have this stuff? And or why is not all of it that way? Because certainly you would not, you really wouldn't want to get out of a plane and the pilot's like, hey, I'm actually going to fly this thing for the next six hours like that would be pretty fucking unnerving right you'd be <laughs> can we just like do what we always do and have the machine do it right you know uh, there are all these funny stories of pilots taking planes to the wrong airport and doing all kinds yeah. of wacky shit so in, in investing though right uh i'll give you a different analogy now uh a discretionary investor can't keep so many things in their brain right they can't be an expert on three thousand companies they can be an expert on a handful of companies. And so they're trying to have really high hit rates on a very small number of bets. The machine is building a kind of stylized version of that reality. It's not going to have all the nuance that the discretionary guy does. It's a model, right? And the model is necessarily parsimonious and therefore doesn't have all the nuances. And as a result, it's not going to be right as often. So its hit rate is going to look a lot closer to a flip of a coin than like, you know, a bullseye throwing dart player. Uh, and so you need a lot of bets by the law of large numbers. So if I'm going to be right 51% of the time, but I can make 10,000 bets, I'm just going to win all the time, right? That's basically like being the house at a casino. You have a very small edge on every game. 
that's the goal, hypothetically, with quant investing. It never works like that, but that is the mentality, right? So you can think of it like you think of, um, you know, a boutique handbag company that sells very few handbags. They're very expensive and they have very high margins on those bags versus, you know, some super cheap mass produced thing that you find at Walmart and Target. Those guys will sell tons of units for cheaper, but they make very little margin on each one. The quant is more like that cheap handbag and the discretionary guy is a little bit more like the fancy handbag, but you can see that there's a place in the world for both, right? So there's a place in the world for having the nuance and the hit rate. And there's a place in the world for really covering the whole universe with one model. So what are some of the things that those models seek to do 51% of the time? Uh, it's pretty simple, actually. You're trying to forecast the future price movement of securities, of any asset. And by the way, it's the same, that is also the same thing that the discretionary guy is doing. When Warren Buffett steps in to buy Goldman Sachs stock, I remember it was 07 or 08, that was a statement about the future price of Goldman Sachs stock. It wasn't like a, I stand by my man, I'm therefore buying Goldman. Like, no, he's buying, he's buying Goldman because he thinks it's going to go up in the future. So it's a, it's a prediction of the direction of that price. Analysts have price targets. That's a prediction. A one-year price, it's a prediction with an end date, right? Like, so computers can do the same thing. It's just automating that. And then once you have that prediction, if I say, okay, I now have a prediction for all 5,000 like relatively tradable stocks in the U.S., what is the rational thing to do with that information? It's to build a portfolio of them, right? That has something to do with how, how your predictions are. So if, if you think that this one's going to go down a lot, you probably shouldn't buy it. You should probably sell it short. If you think that one's going to go up a lot, you should probably not sell it short. You should probably buy it. And in proportion, you should buy it more than something you think is only going to go up a little bit, right? So that's their portfolio construction algorithms. And that's what they do is they rationalize a number of concerns, but chief among them is what's the forecasted movement of, of the security price in question. So the goal of the algorithms is to predict the future price movement of securities. What are some of the core ways, key ways, most important ways that people would need to understand to just get a flavor, a taste of how this world works? In other words, what are some of the predictors that you look yep. at to make those predictions? So we'll do categories, right? Um, oh, man, that would have been a great time for that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> missed it. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll do categories, though, just to stick with our little meme themes. Um, I think that there are uh, basically two types of forecasts, those that are based on effectively price data, price or price derived data or exchange data, call it. And then those that are based on not exchange data. So we'll call that fundamentals. There's price and there's fundamental. That's our top level category. Within each of those two super categories, there are three types of forecasts. So with price. There's trend, which is effectively the statement that, oh, I see that this thing has gone up. I expect it's going to keep going up in the future or down and keep going down. There's mean reversion, which is, oh, this thing has gone up like a hell of a lot. Maybe it's going to retrace a little bit. And so it's a bet against the, pre the previous direction. And then the third one's a little weirder. Uh, I call it technical sentiment. It's by far the least common uh, of the three. In fact, the least common of all the six that we're going to go through. But it's pretty neat. So if you're looking at like put call skew to predict future price or order book imbalances to predict, you know, the short term future price, 
or looking at implied volatility in general to forecast price or looking at volume data to forecast price, anything like that uh, would be in this third category. And when we say technical sentiment, what we're saying is it's really an expression of traders' sentiment about this security, but as seen through some other type of data. In commodities, you would see commitment of traders, right? COT data would be a good indicator of technical sentiment. Let me ask you this on the on the on the price side, because I think this is probably a question that people are wondering. Uh, in a certain sense, trend and mean reversion are opposite. In the first category, mm-hmm. uh, you're betting something is going to go up because it went up in the past, and in the second category, you're betting something is going to go down because it went up in the past. How do you mm-hmm. tease that out in the algorithms for people who are not familiar with this way of thinking? Yeah, it's a, uh, that is a great question. Um, so obviously, you wouldn't make the identical bet in opposite directions and expect that to work. Right. Right. So um, one thing that is generally true, but not always true, is that trend strategies on average tend to have longer horizons. So when you think about the whole industry of managed futures and uh, commodity trading advisors, CTAs, uh, you know, there's a strategy that goes back to the 50s or 60s called trend following. And it's a huge industry of, of assets under management in that space. You know, those holding periods typically are like weeks to months, right? Those forecast lengths are weeks to months. Uh, When you think about mean reversion, that's typically, you know, I characterize as like a short-term retracement from a big move. So that's something where if you imagine, like, let's say oil prices have been going up, right? So there's now a medium-term trend upward in oil prices. So one thing you could imagine doing is saying, okay, I'm going to generally be long oil at this moment. But I'm going to calibrate how long oil I am based on. So you imagine some trend line and then you imagine like oscillating around that trend line. I'm going to calibrate my position in crude so that it's taking the opposite bet as that oscillation. So when crude is outperforming the trend line by too much, according to some definition of too much, I just I I reduce my long. Right. Or when it goes down below that trend line. So it's underperforming the trend that you expect, then maybe I increase my position in crude. And it'll average out to be whatever my long position would have been based on that trend. So that's a way of thinking about these things sitting together. That's It is oversimplified. Um, mm. You can do uh, very, very short-term trend following, and you can do much longer-term uh, mean reversion. And in fact, I would argue, I know we're, we haven't gotten to the fundamentals yet, but the first fundamental strategy is value. That is effectively longer-term mean reversion. But it's it's kind of how it ends up playing out. Yeah, this is for people who've heard Warren Buffett's great aphorism that in the short term markets are voting mechanisms, but in the long term they're weighing mechanisms. This is the notion of value and understanding the you know net present value of future cash flows as the term of art in the financial services space and how it reverts uh, to the mean that would be suggested by those fundamental underlying models. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, you made a very important point there. Uh, In the technical strategies, the mean that you're reverting to is determined largely from price and volume type data. In the fundamental world, that center of gravity, that mean that you're reverting to is coming from fundamentals, net present cash flow, um, net present value of cash flows. Um, So there are three fundamental strategies, just to name them. There's value which is the idea that all else equal, you should buy the cheaper thing. 
and sell the more expensive thing. Uh, the second is growth, which is all else equal. You should buy the thing that, or sell if it's bonds, where there's like more economic growth behind it. Right. Um, expected or realized. Uh, those are two flavors of growth. And then the third is what, what we call quality, which is really all else equal. You should buy the thing that you expect not to go bankrupt or be a fraud. Like it'll still exist and be solvent. Right. Um, in that space, uh, value and growth are again, more, far more common to see quality is much less widely used because typically, you know, stocks are risky and you don't get rewarded for buying the least risky thing in a risky asset class unless the shit is hitting the fan. So something like quality works great in an Enron WorldCom type of day when uh, back in 02, there were a bunch of accounting scandals at some pretty big companies. Uh, and, you know, so there was a flight to quality. And so you got paid in that moment to own quality names. Uh, in 2007, 2008, again, there was a flight to quality. One interesting thing is what quality meant in 0203 was simple balance sheet, no financial games. What it meant in 07 was not a bank. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, those, that's, uh, that's basically, that's the list of things that you can do. And that's true whether you're discretionary or, or systematic. Outside of certain machine learning things, that's pretty much the list of, of strategies. Rishi, we've just done something on this show that's never happened before, and it's a testament to how great this conversation is. We've gotten through the entire half hour on my first question. <laughs> There's only one solution here. We have to have you back for a part two and or parts two, three, and four to continue this conversation. One thing folks may be wondering about who are listening is, why haven't we gotten to crypto yet? Obviously, uh, the answer is that many of the same theories that we're talking about right now, many of the same practices apply in the capital market space as well as in the crypto space. And Rishi, when you come back to continue this conversation, we're going to talk more about that journey into crypto and how these lessons you've learned apply in that space as well. That sounds great. Sorry I'm so long-winded. <laughs> Rishi, you have found the perfect place to unpack all these ideas, and we're incredibly excited about having you back again on this show. Oh, thanks. I'd be thrilled. Great to be here. Thanks for listening, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues. <laughs>